Kronos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single-source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioural intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Adam Davis. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the evolution of the super app. What are they? Why is it taking so long for them to make it to the West? And what are some of the cultural differences that can make or break their product market fit? As always, I'm not alone. Uh, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the day, Kate Moody. Kate, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Nice to see you again, Adam. It's been a little while. So, um, but yeah, and I'm very excited about this one. I think it's um, a super interesting topic, both from a sort of in market strategy perspective and also from a customer behavior perspective so lots for us to dig into today yeah and on the logistics side it's rare we're actually recording this on what a monday morning this is a rarity shocking you can probably hear the fragility in our voices <laughs> but yeah it's a be kind to us listeners it's early i hope you're over your your weekend hangover all right <laughs> as always we're joined by guests not from 11fs and we've got some amazing guests with us today first of all making a welcome return to fintech insider neri torado who's the vice president of strategy at tinkoff bank neri how are you doing I'm good. I'm a couple of hours ahead of you guys, so I've had a few extra hours to wake up. So all good. Oh, you've had more coffee than we have. Yeah, a f- a few more cups, yes. <laughs> cool. Can you just give our listeners, I'm sure the majority of our listeners have heard of Tinkoff, obviously, but do you want to just give sort of in a nutshell who you are, what areas you serve, how you came to be, etc.? Sure. So Tinkoff is Russia's leading financial services provider and financial ecosystem. We have over 15 million clients ranging from both retail customers to which we offer a number of credit products, including credit cards, point of sale loans, personal loans, home equity, car, etc. We have a Russia's largest brokerage business. We have Russia's second largest internet acquiring business, one of the largest SME businesses. And we have a basically a very broad and, and, and comprehensive financial ecosystem. And more recently, we started going beyond financial services, which is why yeah, I guess we, we've been invited here to discuss super apps, because through our super app, customers can also book travel tickets, they can book restaurants, hotels, cinemas, they can do some e-commerce activity. So basically, we're going a little bit beyond the financial services to make sure that our customers stick with us for longer. Cool. Thanks very much. And joining us and making his FinTech Insider debut, we have got David Handloss, who's the founder and CEO of Stocard. David, how are you doing? Very good, Adam. Great to be here. Good stuff. Where are you dialing in from? I'm, I'm based in Germany, so I've had one additional hour of coffee. Cool. All right. Cool. David, again, for the purposes of the listeners, if they haven't heard of you guys, what are you guys doing? Yeah, absolutely. So we're Stocard, Europe's leading mobile wallet. We have 60 million consumers. And what we do is we combine shopping and, and financial services into one single app. 
Um, we have about uh, 2 billion point of sale transactions in the last 12 months, and we're an app that our customers typically use on a weekly basis. So they use it a couple of times per week, uh, which means we have extremely high, high usages and are looking to shape the future of um, the way that people shop and use financial services here, especially in Europe, but we also have a strong user base in North America and Australia, New Zealand. Awesome. All right. Great to have you guys with us this morning. Let's go into what is a super app. So let's start sort of at the beginning and I guess, you know, where this all started. I'll throw it out to the floor. What I guess constitutes what we would term a a super app? Well, I think this is, again, it's going to get us probably down a bit of a rabbit hole to see if this will get started because I think there are lots of different definitions out there. Lots of people are already starting to claim that they are themselves super apps and all doing slightly different things. But I suppose when you strip it right back, to me, from my perspective anyway, a super app is a platform that is offered by a company or a brand that offers multiple different services in one place and what those combinations of services are and how they interact and the extent to which they reach out to customers' lives is, is different. But fundamentally, it's the idea that you know, you're know you using a digital platform, primarily kind of an app on, on a mobile phone to access multiple different types of services, but within a single interface or a single user experience. Yeah. David, Neri, are you concur? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think Kate, Kate gave a great summary. I think the most important thing is that there are multiple services that the consumers access. Um, and the, the key component for me is I think the extremely high frequency. So ideally on a daily or multiple times per week uh, um, basis. Yeah, if, if I could add, the, the way we see the super app is basically composed of, of four main pillars, let's say. So first you actually have to have a lot of traffic going through the super app. You have to have a service that is, uh, as David said, high frequency and, and high usage. You need to have the payment and financial capabilities to actually gel all those services together to make sure that actually the person can do the transaction all, all, all through that uh, through that app. As in a financial services provider, you're obviously in a great position to, to be able to do that. But then you need basically a kind of marketplace and then you know where, where you can offer different goods and services, as you rightly said, beyond what normally the core competency of the company might be. And in our view, you also need some kind of content. And that could be you know, content that attracts or retains customers, that informs them, that educates them, so that it gives them an extra reason for the customer to actually come into the app and learn or adapt what they're doing based on our recommendations. Those are the kind of four pillars that we try to develop within our super app. Yeah, it is interesting when you look at, I suppose, some of the more well-known super apps. You look at the Ubers, the Grabs, certainly the Gojeks, etc. They've all started from different bases. I think Gojek started, I think, from a, they were a motorcycle hailing platform. Obviously, Grab, we know. Lots in sort of mobility and and solving that customer problem. For for you guys, is there a kind of a right place to start? Or is there uh, actually, it doesn't really matter as long as you've got sort of fundamental building blocks in place. So from our perspective, the most important building block uh, for a super app is that you have this extremely frequent usage. You have to have a really strong pull factor. Ideally, you're a home screen app. So this means that your customers, um, they don't have to swipe left or right on their phone when they're looking to open you, but you're right there on their home screen. And if you have that as a basis, you can build a lot of additional services on top of that. So the way we did it is we actually started first off with digitizing your parts of your wallet. And we said, we're going to digitize everything except for payments. So a pretty different approach from a lot of other players in the market. And we said, you know, if you can digitize um, loyalty cards, gift cards, coupons, and make that shopping experience really amazing and create something that's extremely sticky for your consumers, then you can add additional services on top of that. And so as we saw the numbers exploding and we saw we had uh, tens of millions of customers using Stokart, we continuously added 
more services on top of that. Um, and I think that's something that you've seen in, in the Asian markets as well. So some come from a kind of chat perspective, um, like like WeChat. Yeah. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Adam, you know, ride-hailing uh, services are, are also a great starting point just because consumers in those markets use those on a very, very regular basis and are looking to add additional services um, on top. Yeah, no, look, I, I would say that Clearly, if you look around the world, most of the examples of super apps come from either ride-hailing or, or chats or just technology companies in general, because these are the only ones really that one have the customer-centric approach. They put themselves in the shoes of the customers, and they actually have the tech capabilities to build out these services that work very well, that are all seamlessly integrated. What I would say is that in the case of Russia, we're actually, you know, we have a financial sector and you have got a few financial players, including ourselves, which are very technological and compete with the tech companies. And you have also like a Revolut, for example, in, in Europe. So if you, I think at the core, it just comes down to your customer centricity and whether you've got the technological capability of actually building out services that are highly engaging. It doesn't really matter which side you come from. You know, as David said, you do need the frequency of usage as well. Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you guys just in this sort of upfront segment was around loyalty because it's pretty prominent in both your offerings at the moment. It's an interesting one. I used to work on loyalty programs with the banks. I mean, a nightmare to solve, you know, to get the margins right, to make sure you've got the marketplace together, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Really, really hard to distribute that as well at scale. Both of you have got sort of a different approach to it, but both of you are solving that problem. Did you see that as a core component of actually building that frequency, if you like, is to make sure, because loyalty is such an issue in the West, was that something, uh, or in your home markets, was that something that you thought, actually, that's got to be a center pillar of what we do? For us, you know, we've got lots of different services and products, right? So some products through which we monetize customers, some of them are acquisition channels, and some of them are engagement channels. And so in order, firstly, to get the mass and the critical mass and the engagement, we identified into in our current account, uh, Tinkoff Black, as the main acquisition channel, which we make into an extremely rich product in terms of cashbacks, in terms of promotions, in terms of perks that we give to the customer. And we basically run it on a break-even or slightly negative P&L because we want to make that product really high quality, really engaging. And so that gets millions and millions of customers every year. And we can afford to do that because then we have other products through which we, we monetize. And so that was the kind of first step to get the critical mass of a very loyal customer base that comes to us because it's a much better product with much better services and much better perks. And then you've got, you know, once the customer comes in, you have to keep them coming, right? And that's where a lot of the other services like ticketing, e-commerce, or the content actually keeps them in the ecosystem, keeps them using the super app. So definitely loyalty, both in terms of getting people to come to you and then to keep them with you is, is key to keeping people on the super app. Yeah, um, to Neri's point, so for us, it's a really important factor to drive people into the app. So it's our main acquisition tool. About 70% of consumers that download Stocard actually come through word of mouth, and loyalty is the is the main driver behind that. So people, they download Stocard, they want to access the loyalty functions, they want to make sure that they digitize um, that part of their wallet, um, and they can start digitizing that within a few seconds of starting the app. So there's even no registration necessary. That's something that's extremely important to us, that the consumers can get to the what we call the magic moment as soon as possible of having the utility of being able to use Stocard. And then typically after a few minutes, you've got your entire wallet digitized with Stocard, and that's then really the kickoff for additional engagement and also monetization on our side. Yeah, because imagine you've got a lot of people converting at the point of sale, I guess, so actually downloading it, etc. So yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to very quickly just ask you guys just one metric point. You mentioned sort of frequency, active customers, etc. For you guys, I guess, how do you measure that? Because 
again, I've worked in banks before. If you log into your mobile banking app once in every, let's say, three months, you're, you're deemed an active customer. I mean, this is sort of going back a few years. I think they've sort of increased that under pressure of the NEOs. But then even the NEOs, especially in the UK, have sort of got different kind of metrics around, you know, if you log in versus making a transaction, if you check your balances versus, you know, making a payment, whatever it might be. How, how do you guys define that? across such a sort of a wide-ranging set of services that you have? So if we're speaking about active customers as a whole, and we've got a very stringent definition of that, we've got 10 million active customers, which we define as revenue generating for us over the last 30 days. So that could be a payment, it could be a transaction, it could be they have a credit card or they have an insurance policy, something that has generated revenue for us, that it becomes an active customer. And that's Linked, obviously, but not necessarily 100% overlap with people that use the app. The people that use the app, we've got across two apps mainly, which is Tinkoff, the banking app, and Tinkoff Investments, which is our brokerage app. We've got over 11 million monthly active users and about 4 million daily active users. And actually, if you look within certain products, so for example, Tinkoff Investments or our debit card, Tinkoff Black, which is the customers that tend to be more engaged and spend more time with us, then the, the Dow to Mao ratio, which we call sticky factor, is closer to 50%, which means that basically a customer comes in every other day into the app. Dow to Mao, just for those who don't know what that is, do you just want to give a very, very quick... Sorry, Dow is daily active users, <laughs> Mao yeah. is monthly active users, and we divide one by the other to get what we call the sticky factor. Cool, cool, cool. And, and David, how about yourself? Yes, for us, the main factor um, in measuring engagement is uh, weekly active users. So we uh, switch from monthly active users to weekly active users. And to be weekly active, you need to take a significant action within the Stokart app. And I think that's one big differentiating factor. So oftentimes when we speak, especially to more traditional banks, what they will do is they will call someone active who uses their debit card or credit card and does one transaction. But like Neri said, you know, then um, it doesn't mean that that someone is necessarily also using using the app at, the, at that point, but they're just using um, using the debit card and credit card. And especially in Europe, someone who's just using a debit card and credit card is very, very difficult to monetize in a significant way from a banking perspective. Yeah. So really having someone in the app and then taking advantage of additional services, I think is one of the, the key factors. And I think a lot of the challenger banks have done a much, much better job at that than the traditional banks. Yes. Um, but still, we're seeing a lot of inflated numbers in terms of the usage, just because there's a lot of people running around using a debit card and credit card on a regular basis and not necessarily in-app activity. Yeah. And uh, Kate, I'll come to you because we've done a bit of work ourselves on super apps. We've worked with companies who obviously have got super apps. We've worked on different propositions for them. I guess from an advantage perspective to the customer, and we're going to get into sort of regional differences and, and, and why customers, you know, in, in, in some regions might prefer super apps versus none. But for you, for the advantages to the customer, what have you seen, I guess, given the work that we've done that sort of that you can class as an advantage to the customer to using a super app versus not? Well, I, mean, I guess if, if they're executed correctly, and I guess it all comes down to the execution of it, right, it should really come down to some fairly obvious things. So obviously, there's if it's done right, you know, the convenience of it, you have a single space, a single sign on, uh, a consistent user experience, you kind of know how to kind of navigate your way around. So it should be really convenient to kind of use and access multiple services in one place. When we know that customers are increasingly sort of, you know, time poor, easily distracted, trying to juggle multiple things, you know, that can make a massive difference. That kind of connectivity as well of having your information, your data, your tools kind of all within that same space, you know, having the ability to connect different things together from a customer perspective, I think can be really useful. And then depending again on the, the range of services offered, you know, Neri's talked about some of the additional kind of financial products they offer. Again, when it's sort of used in the right way, executed in the right way, you know, that 
decision making, the ability for the company that you're interacting with to make decisions about what you can access and what you can use based on a sort of more holistic data set, a more holistic view of you as an individual or as a business, it can really make a difference in terms of the kind of friction that a customer has in accessing products. So those are kind of the main customer-facing benefits we've seen. It's you know, interesting to kind of talk about, you know, incumbent banks or traditional banks. You know, a lot of them have had access to this data historically. They've just not been able to leverage it and use it. So again, it's not just having the data available, it's having the right analytics and tooling in place to enable you to actually use that for the benefit of the customer in a agile and an evolving way. So, yeah. No, well, look, I completely agree. And I think you basically need to create an incentive. The, the customer needs to have a reason to do the transaction in your app as opposed to somewhere else in different services. The reason could be monetary. So you give some kind of discount or, or, or reward, or it could be in terms of the quality of the experience. So, you know, if you go into our super app and you want to buy a cinema uh, ticket, you can go down all the way to selecting the seat at the cinema that you want to go to. And then in two clicks, you've paid. So the experience is just a lot better than going to a separate website. And then I think the other thing is that all the services need to be very well linked together because it's very, it's relatively easy to put a bunch of services in an app and then it becomes a conglomerate of services while you actually need them to be all very well linked and, and, and gelled together. And the last thing I would say is that you need to tailor it to the customer. So I know AI is just a big word that everyone throws out, but you actually need to be able to use data to tailor the way the app looks, the way which services come up first when you open the app, depending on your profile, uh, which content gets pushed to you in the app, whether it's, you know, if we saw that you tried to buy a ticket to Italy, maybe we can offer you some content about what to do over a weekend in Italy. So things like that, that actually make the experience very tailored to the customer to make sure that, again, it's not just an aggregation of services that you can access it in one place, but it's a place where you want to go and, and do your transactions and spend your financial and lifestyle life. I think that personalization is, is key as well, right? Because when you look at the interface of you know, WeChat, for example, you know, they've got millions of sort of mini apps that exist within their interface. So for a customer, if you come into come into that environment and you're just thrown into the middle of that with all of these options, it's mm. confusing and disorientating. But if, you know, as Neri says, you have a, a smart system for serving the right options to the right customer at the right time, then that kind of wealth of services and, and experiences becomes an asset rather than something that confuses or disorientates a customer. Yeah. Just very quickly before we take a break, I just want to say I did have a look through different websites of, you know, so-called super apps, just obviously in, in preparation for this episode, only two have actually listed the word or, or specifically called out the term super app that I could see anyway. I think it was Gojek and I think Grab also have mentioned it on their website as well. Is that, um, I suppose, as an aspiration for you guys, David, I might start with you. Is, is it an aspiration? I don't know how well that would go down in the West. I don't know if it means something to customers, but, you know, is it an aspiration for you to turn, you know, from where you are right now, you're probably on that growth journey to turn into that and like, display it on the website like we are a super app we have arrived you know is it sort of that badge of arrival if you like you know um the maturity I, I, is that something that you aspire to or is it more you know sort of we'll just offer you loads of services but we'll do it in a really nice you know confined way i think it really depends on on who you're speaking to so if you're speaking to to this kind of an audience to to investors to people who are really interested in fintech then it makes a lot of sense to think about super apps and speak about super apps. And for us internally, strategically, we're saying, you know, we want to have a lot of services that make us into a super app. But from a consumer perspective, super apps, especially in, in Europe, doesn't mean a lot to, to the typical consumer. So what they're looking to do is they have a problem that they're looking to solve. And so what we see ourselves from a consumer perspective is just as a problem solving tool. So we want to be a place that they trust 
where they can solve as many problems related to, to shopping and banking as, as possible, make their lives as convenient as possible and as easy as possible. Cool. And Neri, how about you guys? Are you are you ever going to display? No, no, look, I, I, I agree. Obviously, you know, for PR purposes and for IR purposes, when we launched our new version of the app, it was the first financial super app in Europe and all that, you know, all that comes with it. But I, I think you're right. You know, people just want to, they download an app whether it's a super app or a, or a normal app, they don't particularly care. It's what what's inside it that counts. So again, it's not how you label it. Cool. Uh, we're just going to take a quick break here to hear from the sponsor and we'll be back in a sec. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the versatile low-code platform that can build more than just apps. Has your IT modernization hit a bottleneck? Do you need to turbocharge your product development? WaveMaker provides a rich drag-and-drop studio for citizen developers and professional coding and API tools for advanced developers crafting serious banking and financial solutions. WaveMaker's open standards architecture enables further customization of the platform for app developers to easily consume your APIs. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. All right, welcome back to the show. For now, we just want to look at some of the, I guess, geographical differences, cultural differences, technical differences when it comes to super apps. And I guess some of the reasons why it's a phenomenon in some parts of the world and has sort of struggled to be adopted in, I guess, the, the definition that we've given it in, in others. So I guess uh, highest to high level, 50,000 feet. Generally, if you're in the West, if you're in the US, the UK, in Europe, et cetera, customers tend to like having different apps for different use cases. If you're in the East, it's a little bit different. You know, the ask is to build a super app, you know, that, that full ecosystem. Why is that to, uh, you know, top of mind for you guys? Why is that? I know there's some historical reasons, there's some data reasons that sort of, you know, facilitate that. But for you guys, what, what are the main reasons why that behavior is so, I guess, different? The way we see it is that um, a significant factor in the East is the trust factor. So it's more difficult to, to build trust there. People are just, um, you know, if they are familiar with the product and they really trust it, that's extremely valuable. Uh, and the West consumers are a little bit more more open. Um, and that's why we've seen that, especially in, in China, but also other markets in Asia. If you really know an app and it works well and it does what it promises you and they offer an additional service, you already have that trust factor built in. And so you're much more comfortable as a consumer to actually work again with that app. Um, and so the trust factor kind of beats the specialization factor that you have in the in the Western markets where people are, I'd say, in general, more trusting of, of products and services that they use. Um, and in the Western market, it's, it's better if you have a, a more narrow definition of what you can do um, versus in the East. And then an additional factor that we find quite interesting is, of course, the App Store factor. So Apple for example, very explicitly says you're not allowed to be an app store within your own app, but it sees things slightly different in, in China. And so there's been the, the possibility for, for WeChat and Alipay to kind of build mini app stores within their own apps. And Apple has been uh, made an exception for the for the Chinese market around this. What, why did, just very quickly on that, do you, I mean, the backstory of why they did that, was that just sort of market positioning, just given, you know, the, the sort of the landscape at the time, the amount of tech players there were, the amount of search engine companies, et cetera, at the time, they felt they compelled to do that? Or did they envisage this? I mean, like it's, uh, 
it's a strange turn of uh, policy, I guess, for Apple. I don't know whether you've, you've got a view on it. Yeah, my view on it is that, um, again, this trust factor is so important to, to Chinese consumers. So they were extremely trusting of, of WeChat, of, of Alipay or Alibaba. Uh, and so when they added additional additional services on top, Apple didn't didn't really stop them because they needed these two services in order to be successful in China. China is a, is a huge proportion of, of iPhone sales for Apple. Um, and so it's a highly profitable, highly lucrative market. And they, they couldn't lose out on the two most important players in this marketplace. Um, and so I'd say that that was kind of forced by, by market forces onto Apple. It was not a, I would say it's not a deliberate choice by Apple to, to actually allow that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a fun fact or a fact uh, for listeners. So the iPhone was introduced to China in 2009. I suppose the history of the internet, I guess, in China means that, you know, company search engines like your Facebooks and your Googles, et cetera, didn't really exist. So there was no, uh, I suppose, going from phones to, or messaging to PCs to the internet to, you know, sort of phone adoption in, in the way that we know it now, mobile phone adoption. Within five years of the release of the iPhone, the number of internet users in China increased by 65%. So it's been a massive facilitator. So yeah, you can sort of understand Apple potentially positioning themselves a little bit different in China uh, than it does otherwise. Kate? I think the other thing to add to that, I think you know, what you said about the iPhone is completely true. I think the other important local factor in the Chinese market that people need to talk about when it comes to super apps is you know, the the history of, of the payments infrastructure as well. It's not just about sort of the internet infrastructure, but you know, in China, there wasn't really, you know, by and large, an established payments infrastructure around credit cards and things like that, which exists in other markets. So you know, when these platforms you know, like WeChat came into the market and were able to build a really smooth mobile-based payments ecosystem into the app, you know, they didn't have to compete with the existing credit card in your wallet. They were taking quite a lot of customers that maybe hadn't had these types of easy payment options before and were just instantly adding value. So I think, again, that kind of accompanied with the kind of emergence of internet usage was was just a really potent combination the two combined mm. yeah and i think basically you both touched on on a theme of of leapfrogging effectively because in europe and and in the west we got used to using facebook for social media google for search amazon for e-commerce etc cetera, etc cetera. while if you look east a lot of these services started appearing much more recently and some companies have managed to basically go into these services all at once and then combine them into a super app so they just the, the customer didn't have enough time to get used to using different services on different platforms and then i've actually heard of like some interesting you know structural issues for example in in southeast asia where for example the average amount of storage space that people have on their phones actually is not that high so people prefer to have one app where they can do everything as opposed to 10 different yes. apps where yeah. it consumes all the memory that they have on their phones um so i think there are also some kind of localized reasons why it just makes more sense to have everything through one app as opposed to many different ones yeah and actually just on that point i mean we, we talk a lot uh k11fs that things around being product first product centric and what, what you can say about a lot of the super apps especially in the east is actually it's going ecosystem first if, if that makes sense and i guess for you guys Neri and david have you have you sort of in your approaches to product and product build do you see sort of a stark difference like is it actually a conscious thing that when you when you're looking at let's say a new feature or a new capability new service instead of saying you know what you know we're going to drill down to the explicit use case of this and build it out actually it's the first question you've got is more how does this fit into our wider ecosystem uh, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in you know without getting into the technicalities of it sort of the difference in the product methodology that you've got versus maybe a facebook or someone like that in, in in the west i hinted at it before you know when we think about a new product or services it needs to serve at least one of three purposes it either becomes an acquisition channel where we can bring in tons of customers 
it's either a service where we can monetize or it's a service where we can engage more with a customer. We like to think ourselves as a, of ourselves as a financial ecosystem. So that's our core expertise. We don't want to build out a taxi business or a messaging or, or social media business. It's not what we are about. And we think there's more than enough that we can do to help our customers' financial lives. And so we start within that financial ecosystem and see if there's products that can either help us keep our customers with us for longer or get more customers or monetize those customers more. From our perspective, we really try to focus on on what the customer needs from us. Um, and that is they want to have an amazing shopping experience. So um, when people download Stokard and start using Stokard, they use it to make their shopping lives easier to, to get more out of their shopping, to save a lot of money. Um, and so whenever we think about a new feature, we, we think about it from a perspective. Does it make the, the shopping of our consumers, does it make it easier? Do they save more money? Is it more convenient? And of course, everything that's uh, in a physical wallet is something that we also want to want to integrate into Stokard. And that's kind of the, the way that we think about it. I think another really interesting point when you, because you touched Facebook, I think one really interesting point in regards to the way consumers will see this in the West is I think um, the super apps in the West will be built more around financial services and around shopping than they will be around chat. There's just huge issues for consumers around privacy. And I think chatting is not where you want to do um, most of your commerce transactions uh, from Western world. I think WeChat really is a, is a very, very unique example that, that only happened that way in, in, in China. Yeah, you can see um, even sort of there's relative, I say relative slow adoption of things like WhatsApp Pay and things of that nature in, in different parts of the world. And that kind of alludes to that, like actually, you know, the use case for making payments over chat isn't necessarily, or hasn't necessarily scaled yet, uh, which is quite interesting, certainly in, in, in sort of um, in the West. I w- wanted to get your views on, you know, the, the rise of the super app in the West, whether or not you feel let's say your Apples, uh, your Android, well, uh, you know, the Googles, those who actually make the hardware. Um, what's kind of the tipping point? At the moment, they hold the majority, I guess, of the uh, of the power. They hold, you know, a lot of the requirements in terms of, you know, what can and can't constitute an app in the ecosystem. Um, do you ever see, let's say, a Facebook or, you know, one of those companies growing to the point where it could consider itself a super app in the traditional term that we've sort of, uh, we've defined it? And therefore, they themselves become more, if you like, powerful than than the apples, etc. In the way that an app is actually created and put onto an ecosystem, put onto a, like a quote unquote app store. Because at the moment, it's sort of Apple says something and they sort of have to bow to it. I know there was recent data changes and privacy setting changes within Apple themselves that they've just rolled out. And all the earnings reports I know over the past couple of months has alluded to it. You know, everyone's sort of worried about how this is going to impact revenue going forward. So I guess for you guys, do you see there being an imbalance, a tipping point, or have we just got a long, long way to go to get to that point? I think this is actually a massive year. I think 2021 is going to be a really big year because if you look at Google, for example, you know, they've already announced quite a significant new product additions that are kind of due to kind of come out this year in terms of their their move into financial services. And I know, you know, we've talked about maybe in the West the majority of super apps are going to start from financial services, but I guess Google is going to try and go the other way. And it'll be really interesting to see how much success they have, you know, across this year. You know, they've announced lots of partnerships with with banks in the US, for example, to try and kind of roll out wider financial capabilities. So it'd be really interesting to kind of watch how that how that plays out. Um, we talked earlier about you know the language you use to investors, and I know that the CEO of, of PayPal has come out this year and said that you know they are now set on becoming a, a super app. Obviously, they've got the the partnership with Venmo. So again, you know, interesting to see kind of 
how they try and build that out. They've seen huge increase in usage as a result of, of the coronavirus pandemic. So again, we talked at the beginning about how that frequency of usage, that size of that user base is, is key. Lots of these companies have seen the pandemic as a way of accelerating that uptake of that user base, accelerating that frequency. And now they're going to try and capitalize on that. And I think this year is going to be key for seeing whether the likes of PayPal, the likes of, of Google, the likes of Amazon, Apple can can actually bring some of these products to market in a way that is ticking all of these boxes that we've talked about in terms of the customer experience and, and, and what customers can actually achieve in a single place. Yeah, we talk a lot about cultural blockers when we're creating products. You know, um, we do quite a lot of sort of in-depth cultural analysis. Is there a, I suppose, in sort of the way that those products are created, you know, culturally driven reasons, I guess, as to why super apps have taken longer to come over here. So we've talked about some of, I suppose, the more sort of logical user flow, use case reasons why they haven't come over, uh, some of the history and the infrastructure and data, et cetera. But from a cultural perspective, will it ever catch on in, in that kind of way? I mean, I think the, if you take the US as a particular example, I always find the US fascinating because, you know, every time I've said this on the show a couple of times, you know, every time you speak to a US consumer, they open their wallet, like just a cascade of credit cards falls out. You know, there is this sort of historical acceptance or you know, a customization to having multiple different relationships with, with different providers for, for different parts of your just your financial life let alone as we've talked about you know your social media your shopping all of those other things so I think there's quite a big barrier to, to overcome certainly again if you look at lots of the investor releases you know lots of the CEOs are, are very confident that we're about to reach a tipping point where you know what I think is called the, the great rebundling you know customers are going to stretch themselves too thinly and the experiences are going to become too too fragmented and customers are going to see a benefit of aggregating that that back together. So yeah, again, I think this year is kind of a, a key year for it. But certainly lots of businesses are betting big on customers wanting to see more convenience and wanting to see more things available in one place. Um, it'll be interesting in the US in particular to see how that pans out. Cool. And I suppose, Neri and David, if, if one organisation in the West was to claim the title of a super, here goes like the, the, the $64 million question, but who would you have your money on? Because we've mentioned Facebook about 500 times during the show, not, not not for any other reason that it's the first one that came to my mind. Um, so there's, there's no bias there at all. But I mean, if, for you guys, if you're looking at in the same way that maybe Grab has expanded, Gojek has expanded, C-Server, C-Limited, I looked at their share price the other day, since they IPO'd in 2017, it's gone up over 1400 percent just an enormous enormous rise and they started with video gaming so it could be a whole sort of different angle there in terms of you know sweeping up the millennial market and, and hitting the game but for you is is there a company on your mind you're thinking crikey you know if they just got it right you know they could sweep up from our perspective i think it's easier to exclude who who can be relevant i think facebook is definitely yeah. definitely not one of the front runners in the west uh, to do this i think it, with the privacy concerns around facebook it's going to be very difficult for them yeah um, to get any kind of any kind of super app feeling going i mean they're doing an amazing job, especially with their acquisitions, but building on top of that will be very challenging for them. Um, from our perspective, it will be much more something focused on on shopping, financial services that is able to, to make the switch. And there's quite a few really interesting players and a lot of really interesting things going on in that area there. So um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see from, from an inside and from an outside perspective of, of how that evolves in the next couple of years. We can probably pretty safely rule out the outcome of a, of a China or in Southeast Asia, where you've got one app where you do everything. And so I think you will have super apps that are specific to a certain field. So you'll have a financial super app, you'll have a commerce super app, and you'll have maybe a mobility super app. Or if, And um, I mean, I think without necessarily awarding anyone with the, with the trophy of who's going to be able to win, I think we can all think of the, the strongest 
players in each one of those. But yeah, I think um, there there won't be one winner as you as you've seen in the, in Asian markets. Yeah, I mean it is interesting. I mean, the, the, if you like, the route to customer acquisition and the monetization off the back of it is is there for somebody in the West. But as you say, there's not there's not really, I suppose, in the same way, in the same business model, in the same cultural way, sort of an incentive for customers to, to necessarily do that. Uh, I, I guess sort of one of the final questions I wanted to ask you guys is where, where you see yourselves in, let's say, 18 months to two years. So again, is it, it, it is what you're looking at kind of again just a growth of the services that you've got and a continued sort of ability to grow that ecosystem and you know where do you see the market evolving in 12 18 months etc so for us as i said we've got uh, over 10 million active customers we think that by 2023 we'll definitely be over 17 18 possibly over 20 million um that will make us uh the second hopefully largest bank in russia we're the number three now by number of customers and what we want to do is then do more business with each customer. And that's where the super app and one platform where you can do everything comes in very handy, right? So we have on average 1.4 products per customer based on the various products that we have. We want to get to 1.7, 1.8, and then eventually over two. Uh, we don't see any reason why a customer shouldn't have a current account and then another financial product with us. Uh, and again, the ability of giving customers one place where they can do everything uh, of their financial life will help us get to those targets and get to, the, to that level of engagement. And um, that's for Russia. And then we've we've announced that we'd like to go outside of Russia, although we haven't quite yet said where it's going to be most likely in emerging markets and towards the east but that's for maybe another time i was going to get a scoop out of you just a little just a little teaser before the end i thought i was going to get a scoop there but maybe not <laughs> that's right i'll work on you neri no worries <laughs> and, and david how about yourself yeah for us the the goal is really to to continue to excite our customers and, and really help them have an amazing shopping experience so we see that we're on path to hit 100 million consumers there um, and I think that will be the really important factor in, in in winning. This is just, you know, like I said, exciting more customers, building more services and getting this daily usage that is that is so exciting to everyone. Um, one additional thing that I'd like to highlight around the, the strategy and then discussion around super apps, a lot of uh, financial services companies, especially in Europe right now, are really thinking about uh, first they were thinking about monetizing through fintech. And I think it's it's quite challenging. And one big trend that you've seen, if you take a look at the biggest of, of tech companies, so Google, Apple, Facebook, and, and Amazon, is Google and Facebook currently already do a lot of their revenue through, through advertising. And you see some really strong pushes from Amazon and Apple into advertising. Um, and from the model that we see, and this is the model that we've been pushing for a while, is that um, revenue um, through advertising is actually extremely lucrative for a super app, just based on the, the data that you have as a super app and based on the on the daily consumer interaction that you have so you can really you know show consumers really amazing offers show them um you know the stores that they should be visiting um and, and we see an extremely strong effect of that on the consumer's behavior and that of course also really really drives the the advertiser interest in the advertiser monetization mm. and then with fintech being extremely competitive in, in Europe. So if you take a look at the margins of a lot of the, the fintechs, they're very low. And advertising actually has an extremely high gross margin, which is, of course, also why, um, especially Google and, and Facebook, have so much money and, and so much money to spend. Um, and so we see in the next 24 months that there will be a huge shift of fintechs trying to, to monetize better through advertising mm. because 
based on, on the current valuations of a lot of the fintechs, it would be very, very difficult to grow into that just using financial services. I guess just to follow on from David in terms of like things that we've not had a huge amount of time to talk about today, you know, we focus very heavily on you know, B2C, you know, the consumer version of, of super apps. Now, I think it's also going to be interesting to keep an eye out over the next 18 to 24 months on some of the business platforms that are increasingly kind of becoming business super apps. So, you know, we've seen the likes of Square, Shopify in the US kind of taking massive strides to again build out this ecosystem mm. where they're starting with one part of the experience and then building out this kind of really holistic range of, of services again you know high frequency usage again, a smaller customer base obviously can you know, versus a consumer audience but potentially higher opportunities to generate revenue per customer so again i think keeping an eye on the sort of the business super apps as well is, is going to be something to, to to watch out for yeah i mean the, the producer is going to kill me but i did want to ask one more because it's just come to me but if, if if i'm a sort of a legacy bank or a legacy in sort of the most traditional term and i'm looking at this and i'm hearing the numbers that you guys have got you know monthly you know engagement daily engagements you know you're talking over 100 million customers etc cetera, etc cetera. where do i fit in as in you know what, what can i add to the party is there anything you know you're talking david about potentially switching business models for fintechs to be advertising led which from a revenue perspective, you know, definitely makes sense. There's, you know, use cases, uh, plenty benchmarks there that, that, that suggests, you know, the revenues will con- it will, it will, will go up uh, if that is the case. But if I'm a legacy bank, I can't really do that. I don't really have the trust to introduce advertisers into the mobile app because it's just so, in, you know, entrenched in sort of previous performance and, and what and customer expectations. Well, where do I fit as a legacy bank within this world? Or is it the case, you know, that this is, you know, an example of banks becoming the pipes rather than the distribution? Yeah, I think it really depends on on who kind of wins the super app battle in in Europe. Um, Is it um, an aggregator or is it someone who has their own banking solution? So we strongly believe that it will be an aggregating solution like like Stokart. Um, And their banks very much play a role. So we, for example, at Stokart, we said we have zero ambitions to open any kind of current accounts or bank accounts. There's a lot of uh, work involved with that. The cost structure of having a a current account is is really bad. Um, It's in the future, it will no longer be a kind of the platform that you need to start real monetization of the customers, but just that daily engagement. So I think banks very much have a have a role to play in that. And in China, the way that you see it in, in those super apps is they act as a marketplace. So they also have no ambitions of actually offering or little ambitions to offer the financial services directly. And they oftentimes, you know, um, give customers the, the best offers from a bank partner um, and just allow customers to choose that and have a really, really good overview of, you know, which bank is willing to offer them what. Um, and it makes it makes life, of course, a little bit more difficult for banks because they're directly competing with each other. And, and it's very transparent to customers what the offerings are. Mm. But it's great for consumers. They get much better deals. And it really increases the transparency for them and it makes their lives easier and better. Yeah. And Nirag, you, you guys have started as a bank, but maybe slightly different. I mean, uh, again, same question to you. Well, you know, look, we see ourselves as a technology company with a banking license, right? If you walk here around the office, you only got software developers and, and, yeah. and data scientists and, and software engineers. So I, I think that for legacy banks, it will be incredibly difficult to manage and, and, and run their own customer relationship. Because they just one, they cannot hire the talent that is required to provide this level of services that people expect, given how you know all the tech companies and how amazing products are. And secondly, they just don't have the, the right culture and the right entrepreneurial mentality to actually innovate and, and surprise their customers with really cool things. And so my view is that they will end up being the pipes. They will be 
plugged in into other aggregators or they will be plugged in into other tech companies through potentially banking as a service providers. But I think it will be otherwise very, very difficult for them to try and actually compete with other fintechs. They just don't have what it takes. Cool. Thanks so much, guys. That was much appreciated. I know it's relatively early in all our locations, but that was really, really, uh, I really enjoyed that. Where can people find out more about yourself, Nira? Let's start with you. For us, thinkofgroup.com. That's where we have all of our uh, IR and PR materials. And if you want to contact me directly, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to go about it. Cool. Uh, And David, how about yourself? Um, I would very much encourage anyone who wants to know more about Stokard to actually download the the Stokard app. Hopefully, we'll get you to the magic moment within the first minute, like we've done for our 60 million customers. Um, Then, of course, you can also go to the website, stokardapp.com, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Can I just say, you've solved the number one issue from banks back in the day, which was how to get the Boots card online, how to digitize a Boots card. It might not mean a lot to you in in Germany, but in the UK, that was a significant problem just because of the traffic the Boots had. But anyway, uh, Kate, how about yourself? Probably the best way to get hold of me is either on LinkedIn, so Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter at k8.moody. Cool. And you can find me on AdamD8 on Twitter or 11fs.com. Thanks so much. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us reviews. Uh, It helps it makes this show better and helps others find the show. If you want to join the conversation, find us on social media just search for 11fs fintech insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com thanks so much guys again much much appreciated really enjoyed that and goodbye for this week